0: Well, we're going to have our Bible reading now. So um, we do have some blue Bibles that are church Bibles. If you want a hard copy or if you've got it on your phones, um, please turn to 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, Before we do that, we're going to say this prayer of illumination. This is something that churches throughout history have done as they approach God's word together as congregations. It's a way of consecrating ourselves, of uh, saying, Lord, we're open to receive. And here's a historic prayer that's been used Uh, over the years, uh, by Christians in many different countries to ask for the Lord's inspiration. So let's pray this prayer. Holy Spirit, make your word a swift word, passing from ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip and conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and what Paul has been arguing here in this letter with a church that he loves deeply and has worked with for some time is he's looking in chapter 9 at his rights as an apostle. He's trying to show this church that should know better that he should be listened to, that he has a God-given authority and they're there, the fruit of his apostleship, the work. So Paul's defending himself here as to how he does his ministry without asking for any money or support from them, and how that also helps the gospel flourish. So in verse 18, we read, "'What then is my reward? "'Just this, that in preaching the gospel "'I may offer it free of charge, "'and so not make full use of my rights "'as a preacher of the gospel. "'Though I am free and belong to no one, "'I have made myself a slave to everyone, To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race, all runners run, but only one gets a prize? I myself will not be disqualified for the prize.
1: Thank you. And uh, yeah, once again, it's really good to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. And thank you too for just the involvement you've had over many years with uh, the the brothers uh, and their families in South Asia. It means a lot to them. And those of us who've met them personally and who've uh, spent time with them, uh, what they do really is valuable and very, very significant. Um, so thank you for your partnership in that, and thanks for this topic too, uh, Pete's idea of uh, kick-starting, activating our missional intentionality. It's an important idea uh, to think about. It's important that we are people who have uh, missional initiatives and attitudes and hearts, that we are missional people fundamentally because we follow a missional God. Our God is on a mission to a world that he loves so very much. And part of the, the joy and privilege of being followers of Jesus is that we are recipients of that, and also that we get to be part of the wider cause as participants of it. So that we're, we're part of this story that, that spans the ages, and it spans the world, And and, I always think it's amazing to just realize that our our little stories, the little sliver of our lives, whatever that might be, 70, 80 years or whatever it is, in the big span of eternity, slots into the amazing narrative of everything that God is doing in the world. And I I think to get that is, is both humbling and empowering at the same time. Because it's humbling because we realize it's really not about us. You know, we're just this little blip. in in all of human history, and yet it's empowering at the same time because it gives that blip great significance, huge significance as we live our lives in this world, that we get to play a part in the unfolding of God's kingdom and uh, the remaking of humanity and loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves. It's vital for us as individuals and as church communities because there is so much need in the world, isn't there? There's so many places around the globe, in our own country as well, and in our cities, in our neighborhoods, where people, people need, well, they need peace, they need hope, they need forgiveness and freedom, they need to find the, the life and the joy and the satisfaction that can ultimately only be found in Jesus. And so the passage that we're looking at this morning is one which I hope we will see models something for us of how we can live in the light of those facts seeking to have a a missional heart a heart that wants to win as many as possible so this passage hopefully can help us see two things the first one is this to have a, a missional heart means having a servant heart having a missional heart means having a servant heart in verse 19 to 23 Um, This comes out in in what Paul says in these verses, but it's worth picking up a little bit earlier uh, to see where he he got to this point and rewind a little bit because, you know, we're jumping in partway through a longer discussion. And um, I, I would ask, like, just kind of hang in there a little bit with some of this because Paul, honestly, isn't always the clearest, is he, sometimes as he writes some of these things. You might have noticed that in the passage as it was read. He's got all these brackets and these extra little repeats and qualifiers and, you know, when I was a, a school teacher years ago, um, if one of my year sixes had given me this, I think I'd be saying, you know, could, could you just like, make it a little bit clearer, maybe redraft it, try it again? But um, you know, far be it from me to say that to the apostle. But uh, anyway, hang in there, right? Uh, this passage is all part of an explanation that's been running through chapters eight and nine, where Paul's been talking a lot about the issue of people insisting on their rights. And of course, you know, people do have rights. This isn't to belittle the idea of of human rights at at all. Uh, Part of Paul's point is that people do have rights, but he wants the Corinthians to have the humility to understand that sometimes we should, as followers of Jesus, forego those rights for the sake of others. So in fact, in the first half of chapter 9, before the bit that we read, what we see is Paul... First of all, claiming certain rights, and then showing how he has surrendered those rights for the good of the people in Corinth and, and the good of those uh, around them. And, and hence he comes to verse 19 at uh, the beginning where, that we read, where he says, though I am free, so that's his right to live in a certain way, though I am free, I have made myself a servant or a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And then he tries to explain a bit for us something of how that works in particular context. So in verse 20, you can see there, he's basically saying that what this means is when he's with Jewish communities, when he's in that part of town, when he's in that part of the world, if he's invited round, and of course that was his background, he's in some social gathering, his practice would be to keep the kosher food laws. He would observe whatever it might be, the festival days, the Sabbaths, the various customs that they have. So when he's invited round to the Jewish household, you know, he doesn't show up with a packet of prawns and a bacon butty to the bring and share lunch because he he's he just you know, he just show my freedom I can do this. Of course not. He acts in a certain way out of respect to the group around him even though those laws are ones that he no longer sees as necessary. Now why they're not necessary is a whole other discussion and you can ask Pete later about that one. But the point is even though he didn't need to act in those ways, he chose to, to fit in and not cause needless offense. Okay, then, by contrast, in verse 21, he describes how when he's with non-Jewish communities, so those who didn't follow Jewish law and who might be kind of freaked out by some of that stuff or just find it socially awkward, he would then exercise his freedom to not have those restrictions and adapt to eat or drink or join in with whatever it might be. So he says he'll act in one situation, in in one way in one situation, but act differently in another. And in all of this, he wants us to know he's not just being lawless. He's not just being what we might uh, describe as being a law unto himself. He wants us to be clear. What he's doing is he's saying, I now have a new relationship with the lawgiver. That's what's changed as I follow Christ. And his ways and I'm under his law so he's saying amidst all of the cultural religious tensions of the first century world in the Near East operating in a world where one of the most noticeable cultural markers was whether you were Jewish or not he will exercise his freedom where it makes sense and fit in with Greek or Gentile culture but in Jewish culture he observes the food laws and other things and then goes even further And extrapolates it out in verse 22, where he says to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. And that's quite a familiar phrase, isn't it? Become all things to all men, as the old versions had it. It's it's a phrase that's become part of English usage. We, we, We know that expression, don't we? Many people may not realize it's from the Bible. But the thing is that for us, it's usually become taken to mean uh, something where someone who's kind of trying too hard to be liked, even a little bit slippery, like a politician who's desperate for your vote so that he's willing to say anything, a little bit spineless, maybe a little bit shifty. But the expression is originally from here, and it is not about Paul being slippery or lacking conviction. Actually, what he's doing is this. He is showing extreme flexibility because he has such strong conviction, okay? He has such a strong conviction that the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus matters so much that nothing else should be permitted to limit access to it for as many people as possible, So this is flexibility, yes, extreme flexibility for a greater cause. It is servant-heartedness in wanting to make it as easy as possible for as many people as possible to experience the life-changing love of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? And that's clearly where it becomes relevant for us, isn't it? Because all of this slightly convoluted stuff about food laws that we may or may not have anything to do with is really just an expression of the same old issue that affects the human heart through the centuries, including our own, that we like to do things our own way. We just do. There is a deep instinct we have that just wants things the way that suits us. But that brings problems if we want to bring down barriers and have a a loving, missional heart. And Paul, therefore, wants us to be willing to give up wanting things our own way and to grow bigger hearts than that, if you like. As Tom Wright puts it, Christian freedom is not freedom to do what you like, but freedom from all the things that stop you being the person God really wants you to be, which is freedom for the service of God and the gospel. So as I live my life, I could say, well, I want to have my life how I want it. And I'll operate in my way and in a way that's you know, culturally comfortable for me. But if that means the people around me won't hear and have the opportunity to connect with the love of God and the good news, then I won't do that. That's, that's what the idea. That's what it's saying. I'll operate in a different way with different people according to what will help them most. To have a, an attitude to the cultures around us that says, I am willing to become like you. For the sake of your understanding and ability to hear the message, we will operate in a way that is more familiar, maybe more understandable, maybe that's operating in places where you're more comfortable, or at times that might fit the rhythm of how you live, or using language you understand, or avoiding customs that make no sense to you or you find confusing. I will go out of my comfort zone so that you may hear the message of Jesus' love and forgiveness in your comfort zone. I will go out of my space and into your space. Does that make sense? Does that sound familiar? Does it sound like anyone we know? Anyone that we worship? Anyone we've been singing to this morning? Let your attitude, this attitude be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but rather made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in human likeness. I've lost the thread now. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. When Paul flexes in this way and gives up his rights, he is taking a position of voluntary weakness that is modeled on jesus christ himself because at the heart of christian truth is the son of god who did not consider equality with god something to be used for his own advantage but for ours he who was and is the servant king giving up his rights to establish ours Why did Jesus act this way and identify with people so radically? He wanted people to share in the good news of the kingdom. And Paul's concern is that we too should live out this principle of love and self-giving in the midst of a needy world. So firstly, to have a missional heart is to have a servant heart. But then there's a second thing too, and that is this. That having a servant heart means serious training. Having a servant heart means serious training in verse uh, 24 to 27. This doesn't happen by accident. See how the letter goes on talking about discipline in sports? He talks about athletes competing and, and training. And, <clears throat> and as he writes, he has something in view called... <laughs> so, okay, I trip over this word when I say it. My daughter was laughing at me yesterday, all right? Something called the Isthmian Games. Isthmian There's too much going on there for me. The Isthmian Games were uh, were first-century games, a little bit similar to the Olympics. And um, these these games, (laughs) they they were, according to uh, a guy called Gordon Fee, who's written a commentary on uh, 1 Corinthians, he highlights that these games were in Corinth in AD 51, which was actually the, the same time Paul was there in the spring of that year he was also in that place during those games. And he and everybody he's writing to here would have remembered that event very clearly. He's writing only maybe two or three years later. And, and so the games had come to Corinth. And since there were no uh, permanent facilities in Corinth until much later for, for visitors to stay in, all the visitors stayed in tents, which of course, you know, was good for Paul, wasn't it? Because what was his job? He was a tent maker, wasn't he? So that was good for him. So while he was there, he had an opportunity to work and earn money, which, of course, was part of the argument he was having explaining to the guys that he was paying his own way. He could support himself. He was meeting people. And and the six basic uh, athletic events that made up these games were running, wrestling, jumping, boxing, javelin, and the discus. And as we'll see, Paul uses two of those to make a point later. Uh, there was a crown given to the winners, a kind of a wreath uh, that the, the, the winner had. They, they wore this wreath made of, believe it or not, celery. There you go. For all those celery haters amongst you, that's a good thing to use your celery for. And slightly limp celery at that, because that's how you sort of bent it round to make a crown. The mind boggles slightly, doesn't it? You know, slightly on the turn vegetables on your head as a prize. Um, but hence Paul's point in saying This was a crown that would not last, (laughs) contrasted with the crown that would last forever. Verse 25, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a celery crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Everyone goes into strict training, he says. The Isthmian games, they were famously strict about the training. To even be allowed to enter, you had to commit publicly to a 10-month training program. And if the training rules were not kept, you were disqualified even before the game started. So he's, you know, harking back to this, this, this idea of these games to try and get people to understand. He's saying, listen to me, living for Jesus and living like Jesus takes this kind of Discipline. It's not something that comes naturally. The humility and the servant heartedness involved does not just happen. It is countercultural at the best of times. In the ancient world, it wasn't even respected as a virtue. Taking a, a lower station or a lower place in society wasn't seen as a good thing. It, it was countercultural, counterintuitive, and it took discipline to go that way. So, verse 26, he's saying if you're running, you need focus. Okay, to run that race, you don't just run aimlessly. You don't just show up for the race with, you know, a can of coke and a packet of crisps and thinking, "I'll give this a go for a little jog around the park." You've got to take it seriously. And likewise with the boxing. You can't just do a bit of shadow boxing, beating the air, as he describes it. Especially for the boxing of this time, which was even more brutal than our boxing might be sometimes. Proper training was needed. I strike a blow to my body, he says. Literally, I treat my body severely. I treat it severely. Discipline myself to learn to be flexible and to adapt for the purpose of serving and blessing others. We need to get into shape, don't we? Each of us, if we're going to break down barriers and meaningfully relate to people and truly love and bless them, it's going to mean a bit of a workout, The vision is to have strong, big hearts that really love and love well such that we are willing to follow the example of Christ and put others' needs before our own and to work together to love the world across all kinds of cultural barriers, adapting endlessly because the good news of Jesus matters that much. I was talking this week to... um, A couple of pastors involved in church planting, church leadership in other parts of the world. One of them in Mongolia and one of them in Ukraine. And it struck me when I was talking to them how, for both of them, they are modeling something of this in both their situations. So talking on Friday with my friend Oggy, who's in Ulaanbaatar in outer Mongolia. Uh, And and one of the the partnerships within Radstock is is with a network of churches in the Gobi Desert. And uh, I've been there a couple of times. Uh, and, and planting churches there and doing church there is very, very different. They have what they call ger churches. Ger's are the tents, you know, the round tents, yurts, we often call them. Uh, they call it mobile church. <laughs> they have these churches amongst the nomadic peoples living in the desert. And, and Oggy's saying, he's a city guy, he says, look, church looks completely different to church in the city. You can't say to people, we, we're meeting at 7 p.m. on Wednesday for Bible study. That's not how life works, because there's all kinds of different factors and different seasons, and in the wintertime and springtime especially. He says, uh, you know, he says it's not so cold there now, you know, it's only minus 17. It's warmed up a bit, he says. It was minus 40. Mongolia is like an extreme place, plus 40 in the summer, minus 40 in the winter. So it's warmed up a bit, but spring's coming, he said, and, and, and in springtime the winds come, so that brings another problem, and the herds might need protecting and People need to move on and to try and find shelter. And so they live in a world where churches start, and they meet in tents, but they might only meet for a time, for a season, because things change, the weather uh, changes, church moves on, herds need to move on, and so something new then has to start. And he says it's very organic. There's always a need to be adapting and thinking of something new. And he's trying to think how they, in the, in the, in the city there, in the capital city, as churches support and work with and equip people to do that well. Another friend, Sergei, uh, lives in Kiev. He's still living there right now in Kiev. He told me how um, the urgency of war has actually meant that they've found ways to be more flexible in starting a church community to meet the needs of a village near the Belarusian border. And he says they, as Presbyterians, he says, are working with Baptists to start a church. He said that would never have happened before the war. (laughs) He said, but the the reality is they're now helping to start a church in a place where, as far as they can tell, there's never been any kind of church, not even Orthodox or Roman Catholic. But the need that people have for help and support and, and hope in Jesus means that they've decided not to let denominational preferences about how to operate or who's in charge to hold them back from meeting the urgent need to reach out and bless. The cause of Christ's kingdom in the world, needs people to be willing to adapt and to be all things to all people. Some of you, maybe in the future, you might find yourself giving up all kinds of rights and comforts to go and work in places where people need the love of Jesus, where you will need to learn to live in a very different way. Maybe God might even be planting something of an idea of that in your heart today. I hope some of you will go and do that kind of thing. We and many other organizations are looking for people to join in with teams in many different parts of the world. Some of you may be involved, I'm sure already are, in international outreach of various kinds around here and you'll need to to flex in this kind of way. But you know the reality is whoever we are, even if you are British born and bred serving in a British context it is still going to be necessary to have this kind of servant heart heart in what is increasingly a post-Christian context it just needs to become more and more normal for us a missional heart is needed yes to have that bigger horizon globally but it's necessary even to cross the street to cross the room to love your neighbor as yourself Sometimes, let's be honest, churches can be some of the least flexible groups in our community, can't we? Someone's sitting in my seat, for goodness sake. (laughs) But missional churches, and to be missional people following a missional God, we actually need to be the most flexible people. So what should we do? How do we get our hearts into shape on this? What does it mean to train your heart in this kind of way? Let's try and be practical about it. Let's think about ourselves. How do you work? How do you operate? You know, I, I think about myself. I like my Saturday morning routines with a pastry and a bit of a Saturday kitchen and, and the coffee. I like my coffee strong, a black, and made in a cafetiere. I like my food spicy and hot. I like my music loud. I like my books arranged in a certain way. I like people to not get in my way when I'm driving. <laughs> I like the open road. It's all kinds of things I like that I prefer. But I can't always have things the way I want them, can I? And what's my attitude when I can't, when I don't? And how can we grow in these things? You know, one thing perhaps is to say let's start small. Jesus said on a different occasion that uh, the person who's faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. Maybe training our hearts starts with sometimes just intentionally taking the lower place. Taking the smaller portion. Doing the task you'd rather not. Holding the preferences lightly. Seeking out what puts others of our friends and family and church community at ease and blesses them. And preferring those things over our own tastes and preferences and comfort. Taking the place of somebody who serves rather than one who expects to be served. You know, it's not an accident, I think, that one of the uh, women who went out from our church and is serving in the Balkans right now was somebody who, when she was back in Derby, I noticed would often prefer others' needs over her own. She owned a house and lived in it with two other single women. And she gave herself the little box room. She didn't make a big fuss about it. I found out that by accident when I was helping fix her guttering one day. But just in many little ways, she would take the lower place and prefer others' needs over her own. It's perhaps no surprise that she's flourishing in ministry in a place where she has to do that every day. Some of you are surely further down the road than I am on this. But as we start in the smaller things, we will grow and find ways to do these things in the bigger things as well, won't we? Serving our communities, our country, even the nation's Of the world around us and the good news of course is that we don't do this by ourselves this isn't about turning over a new leaf pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps if we want to be like Jesus in this way and have his kind of heart help is available in fact we won't manage without it because the spirit of Jesus himself remember is in us and is there to help us as we seek to grow in this and to live in the strength that he supplies. And so as we close and and, and hopefully pull all of this together, I think where we hopefully find ourselves is that we're coming to Jesus to say, please empower and activate our hearts in this way. Lord, we want to have the same attitude as you. Work in us. For the sake of your gospel and your kingdom, we want to share in its blessings. Strengthen our hearts. Give us missional, servant hearts that love our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your
0: beautiful name. Amen. Amen.